to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, Season 6, Episode 1. JR and I are really excited. We've had an entire month to take a break, to rest and recuperate, and even to get a couple recordings down. We are so pumped for this season and the opportunities and the stories that we have a chance to steward and to share with you all. Uh, We want to continue to invite you all to share your stories with us. Um, And before we jump into this first episode, this first interview, which I know you all are going to love and appreciate, we have some really exciting news to share with you all. Yeah, Doug, we are now ready to reveal something that you and I have been working on for the past several months, and it is time to let the proverbial cat out of the bag. It's an exciting MMP announcement. Well, as many of you know, Christianity Today was started by Billy Graham 64 years ago as a resource for Christians and pastors for their news in order to be equipped in their callings. And they do this through magazines, print and online, podcasts, and other resources. You can find it, I'm sure many of you have, at ChristianityToday.com. Now, 4.5 million leaders are reached each month through the work of CT. And 30% of their audience is outside of the U.S. But they have one ministry cause, and it's beautiful orthodoxy. So some of you are familiar with CT, but for those of you who are not, what does Christianity Today do? They lead leaders. They equip and pastor church leaders. They engage in, with thoughtful Christians, and they exist to resource churches. But they have a constellation of other uh, ministries and uh, websites and ways to equip pastors, not just Christianity Today, the magazine, but also CT Pastors, which was formerly Leadership Journal, smallgroups.com. They run the website Preaching Today, WomenLeaders.com, BuildingChurchLeaders.com, Christian Bible Studies, Church Law and Tax, and Church Salary. Now, you may be sitting there wondering, why in the world are you telling us all about Christianity Today uh, when we're on the Monday Morning Pastor podcast? So let's let the cat out of the bag. Doug, go ahead and tell us about this exciting partnership that we have coming up. Drum roll, please. Uh, <laughs> Monday Morning Pastor is entering into a partnership with the constellation of podcasts that are supported and powered by Christianity Today. And so what that means for us is huge. It gives us a little bit of a a much, much larger platform. It gives us the opportunity to remind pastors who they are and whose they are. And it also brings us to a space of having uh, the blessing and the opportunity to work with other people in the industry who have the same heart and vision of equipping pastors and church leaders. And so for the last few months, we have been super, uh, we've been busy trying to get this thing off the ground. And what that's going to look like for most of you, you may not fully notice a ton of differences, but you'll hear some resources and opportunities throughout the show. Uh, Probably almost every single week, you may hear some other podcasts that are being announced within our own podcast just to be part of that constellation and network of other podcasts. So we are so excited for this. Yeah. Oh, man, we've been working on this for quite some time. And uh, uh, to be able to reach out to our friends at CT has been great. I've had a a chance to do some consulting with them in years past. I've written for them. Uh, We've read them for years. And so it it just makes sense with their vision of how they want to equip leaders and pastors and help churches. We go, wait a second, that's what we do. And so we really feel like we're better together with CT, which is just awesome. So Doug, I know you're pumped about it. I'm pumped about it, which is just great. So, and speaking of Christianity today, we are excited on this first episode right out of the gate to sit down with the Christianity Today 2021 Book of the Year Award recipient, Esau McCauley. You're really going to enjoy this conversation. Esau Macaulay is a New Testament scholar and an Anglican priest. He completed his doctoral studies at the University of St. Andrews, where he studied under the direction of N.T. Wright. His research and writing focused on Pauline theology, African-American biblical interpretation, and articulating a Christian theology of justice in the public square. He is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times and has appeared in Christianity Today and the Washington Post. He's also a host of the Disruptors podcast. Dr. McCauley serves as assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College in the Chicago area. He's married to Mandy and they have four wonderful children. His book, Reading While Black, 
African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope, released in the fall of 2020. Reading While Black looks at the tradition of African-American Biblical Interpretation and argues that the Bible rightly understood and read from a decidedly Black perspective can speak a word of hope to African-Americans in the United States today. Doug and I thoroughly enjoyed this book, but we weren't the only ones. In fact, this book was awarded the 2021 Christianity Today Book of the Year Award. And that's what we're going to discuss in our conversation with him today. We have no doubt you'll enjoy this conversation with Esau McCauley. Well, Esau, thanks so much for your willingness to join us here on the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, well, first off, congratulations on the popularity of your book, the impact of your book, and on the Christianity Today Book of the Year Award. That is quite an honor. So congrats. Yes. Um, thank you. It was it was unexpected. I mean, I, I think I think I'm going I'm going to go out on a limb to say I think I'm the first hermeneutics book ever to win. <laughs> I'm going to claim that whether or not that can be like verified anywhere. <laughs> I, did, I did zero research when I came <laughs> to me right now. So no, I, I did not expect the book to be um, as popular as it is. So mm. dealing with the aftermath of it, no one complains about, no one feels sorry for someone who has a popular book, but it was something that's unexpected. So I'm shocked that the Monday morning pastor cares <laughs> about my little hermeneutics book, but thank you. <laughs> well, it's great to have you on. I know you wear a lot of hats, uh, Anglican priest, New Testament professor at Wheaton, you're an author, and we'll get to the book in just a moment. But I also know you have some other hats that I know matter to you a great deal in terms of being husband and father. And if I'm not mistaken, your wife is a pediatrician and a Navy reservist. And if I remember right, I think she was deployed in the midst of this pandemic as well. She She is still deployed. Wow. She left um, in August. And so she won't be back for another few months. Wow. How have you you juggled all that from... A book that's gained in popularity, trying to be a pastor, a professor, and then kind of a functional single parent parent right now. I mean, I I, I always like to be respectful for single parents because I know that like my single parenting is different because there's an end date. So I don't want to, you know, step on their sacrifice. But um, I will say people often say, like, I can't imagine it. And then I say, well, actually, you can. Like, like, Mm -hmm. stop for a minute and think. Are you married? Yeah. You have kids? Yeah. Yep. So yeah. Imagine your spouse leaving for seven months. It's exactly as bad as you would think. It's, <laughs> like, it's exactly that bad. People want to say maybe it's not that bad. You actually can imagine it. And it is just that bad. Like that, that feeling that you have in your chest, just imagining it. That's what it's oh. like. Wow. <laughs> People say, wow. I can't imagine it. I said, like, you actually can. And that's the problem. <laughs> and so what I would say is one of the things that you learn is that you have to manage. It's not really mm-hmm. a question. Um, and so, but the other thing, if, if you want to, if I can go full Jesus about it or spiritualize it, the one blessing about um, having my wife gone during this particular season is that it helped me remind, helped me remind me of what's important. Mm. So my wife leaves in August and the book comes out in September. And so I think the day that the book released, there was no book release party. I was making dinner. Um, and then I think I had an article in the New York times that weekend. I was at my son's baseball game. And so it's really helped me stay grounded and realize like that re- what really matters ultimately is not some book selling or not selling. What really matters is how I care for my wife and my family. Mm-hmm. And so it's been, it's been a very public season as far as my ministry. But as far, as far as my intention, it's been very, very family focused. And I wonder, like, in a different context, had I been, like, not old like I am now, had I been young and, like, I don't know, free to focus on all of this stuff, it might not have been good for my soul. So I think that actually, for, <laughs> it's not how I would like to have learned the lesson. God could have just told me this in prayer that family is important. Uh, <laughs> and I hope that I would have listened. But uh, this other way has been another way for me to kind of learn to appreciate. Yeah. Well, thanks for that vulnerable answer. Uh, I, so much of this podcast is trying to help pastors and leaders remain sane when the world just feels so insane. There's so much insanity um, in the midst of the intensity and all of this. Is it possible to even practice, to, to be engaged in spiritual practices? I imagine it is, but 
with how difficult it's been of your time and being stretched, functional uh, single parent, how and what are some of those spiritual practices that are keeping you grounded when your time is so limited? I would say it's not just like the, at least for me, and, I, and I can, I can, I've been a pastor too. Um, so it's not always just like engaging in the spiritual practices. It's finding a way to steal yourself so those spiritual practices bear fruit. Mm. And sometimes like I'll, you know, I'm an Anglican, so we we have the office, the morning office and the morning prayer and evening prayer. I wish I could say I did morning prayer and evening prayer every day, but let's just say I'm, I'm you know, I do what I can. But one of the things that's hard is you're doing morning prayer, but even in the midst of prayer, your mind is somewhere else. You're thinking about 15 other things. And so the hard part for me, and, and, and sometimes like life, the only way I can describe it is life gets really, really loud. But there's so many people who are telling you what you should do and what you should be. And it's hard in that context when your life is loud, even when you're engaging in spiritual practices, to kind of hear the voice of God. And so what I, what I, two things is I just, you know, I know that the efficacy of prayer doesn't depend upon my intention as it waxes and wanes. And so I try to show up consistently, even when my brain is moving in a hundred different miles an hour. And the second thing that I, that, that I noticed that nonetheless, it is important for me as best as I can to shut out those voices and try to hear what God is telling me to do. One of the strange things about success is that like nobody is there before you're successful. But after you get some success, everyone wants to tell you what to do with it. Uh, uh. And so like when I was writing, when I was writing my book and I had these things on my mind. Like nobody was like saying you should be doing this. They were telling me I should be doing something else. But, <laughs> but now that I've done it, they say, like, oh, I know what you should do now. <laughs> and then everybody has a picture of what they want you to be. This I know it's a passion. This is it, right? You know, there's like these factions in the church that says, if I can get the passion to become this, then our church will be perfect. And the hard part is to be both open to correction. And but but nonetheless listening to what exactly God told you to do. Mm. And sometimes I can get caught up so much listening to so many different voices telling me what I ought to be doing with myself that I don't actually hear what God tells me. And ultimately, ultimately, as a Christian, we live our lives in the presence of God attempting to be obedient. And there's nobody Mm. who can tell you how to do that. People can guide you and counsel you. You know, many counselors are important, but ultimately, you have to have the conviction of what God has told you to do. Mm, in, mm. In, hold on. In accordance with the scripture and the great tradition, like God doesn't tell you yeah. to like, you know, God doesn't tell you to be unethical, but like, you know what I mean when I say that yeah. in those boundaries. Yeah. And that's the hardest part to discern when there isn't an obvious sin in either direction. That's the part mm. where like listening to God becomes most difficult. So Esau, I, what I appreciate is before we started recording, uh, although we, we talked about some things that we won't name in terms of certain sporting teams, but regardless, um, I asked a question about the icons uh, behind you and you talked about how, you know, having Paul and some of these, these you know, the saints uh, looking over your shoulder as you're working, yeah. but you mentioned an icon that was at your house. And I think that that actually really articulates well, even what, what yeah. you just said in terms so, of your pastor. One of the things that like, so I'll tell you like why I got that icon in particular. The icon is John the Baptist and it is John the Baptist who's famous for saying like, I am not the Messiah. Um, like somebody else is responsible for saving the world. It's my job to point to this person. And I keep that icon in my office. And so as I face whatever I read and I look up the person who I see is John the Baptist. Forgive me that it's not Jesus for my Baptist friends. It's John <laughs> I know some of y'all think I'm a heretic for having icons. Just forgive me for this sin while I make this point. Uh, but the point is, like, especially as an African-American who is an academic, who lives in the intersection of a lot of spaces, people want, like, me to be so many different things. You know, we want you to be the voice of this, the voice of this, the voice of that. And I get caught up thinking it's my job to fix the church. And it's not. It's it's my job to um, bear witness to, like, who the church should derive its hope from. And in as much as I'm pointing to Jesus, even when I'm making mistakes, 
myself, people, I want people to see what I'm doing. So one of the, one of the, even though I said, I don't like to talk too much about politics. One of the things in my, in my recent article in, in the, um, in religious news service, like the very end of the article talks about like, um, when Jesus is before Pilate and he, the, in the last scene, Pilate has Jesus beaten and bloody. And then Pilate says, behold the man, behold the man. And Jesus at this point is beaten and bloody. And the church has always said, the church has always said that when, when Pilate said, behold the man, he was actually articulating a great piece of Christian theology and anthropology. It is precisely as beaten and bloodied that we see the human person, Jesus, the fully, the truly human one. And so the Christian then is most human when we're, when we're following in the, the path of the beaten and bloodied one. And so my mm-hmm. job isn't to solve the world's problem. My job is to say, look at Jesus. And, and maybe as a pastor, they know this. We only got like three or four sermons. And like, the, <laughs> you're just killing time until you get back to the, but Jesus part. And you're just a better pastor if you can juke people around, you know, and like confuse them for a little bit long and kind of, my wife calls it jazz hands and then go, but Jesus. And so as long as I'm doing that, I feel like, um, I'm doing well as a writer and as a, as a professor is to continually point people to Jesus. But that part gets you into trouble. Because sometimes mm. people don't want to hear Jesus. They don't want it. And so like giving people Jesus, even when they don't want it, um, as a pastor is, is the tricky work. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about pointing people towards Jesus and through the scriptures, because I know your work is in hermeneutics. The book is about hermeneutics. And so one of the things, maybe we can start this way, because in the beginning of your book, you talk about a little sort of autobiographical context you give, and you talk about going to college, and you said you had a religion major, but then you said, I dropped my religion major not because it challenged my faith with hard questions, but because it didn't ask the right hard questions. Talk a little bit more about that, and, and sort of part two how much of that do we believe is why young people are walking away from the church today? Yes. I mean, so I went through college during dealing with issues of higher criticism. And as a biblical scholar, I'm not afraid of higher criticism. So people can misunderstand that sentence. But like for me, like the question that was burning at the heart of me was not like, did Jonah like, like really swallow the, was the whale really swallow Jonah? Or like, that's not really what was the burning question. In my context, the burning question was, how do I make sense of being a Christian in a context where people who call, who follow the name of Jesus, who called upon the name of Jesus, did so much horrible stuff to African-Americans in the civil rights movement in the aftermath. I grew up in Alabama. And so I like our question was theodicy. Right. Or I, and so like when or how how is it where like how do, how do I function as an African-American Christian when I'm being told consistently Christianity is the white man's religion? So when I'm saying like it was asking the wrong hard question, it didn't de- it didn't help me deal with the stuff that was actually relevant to my life. And so I think that sometimes um, we us pastors, because we go to seminary, and I'm not saying these things aren't important, but we think that we're fighting German liberalism from the 1900s. And that's what we need to protect <laughs> our children from. But our children have a a different experience and helping them and helping our congregations think through these things. Let me give you like one example. This and I think, I, and I, I wish that pastors like would really take this deeply on board. They and, and like drink this into their soul, and they yell at me whenever I tell them this, but I'm going to tell them because I love them. It is not simply the fact that our schools are these liberal propaganda machines. They are, but like that's not just the case. The fact is, and this is just the truth. I, I was a history major. Like our record is pretty bad. Like, I'm just being honest, like you can go to slavery, Jim Crow, civil rights movement and on the side of oppression. I'm just being honest. We're like mostly mm-hmm. Christian. And it wasn't that they didn't know. There were like other Christians who were there. The minority was saying, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And then the Christians were like, no, to be a biblical Christian, it's support the inferiority of the ontological inferiority of women and ethnic minorities. Mm-hmm. And that evidence is like the case is closed on whether or not we were guilty of that. We're just guilty. And we have two choices. We can try to convince our children that that wasn't that bad and hope that they like never get access to the internet. <laughs> <laughs> or 
we help them, like we, we take that criticism on and we say, well, just because we take that criticism on, the theological reconstructions that, that some people think follow from that criticism don't necessarily follow. Mm. So because Christians did this stuff in the name of Jesus, it doesn't mean that you can't believe the Trinity anymore or those guys. And so if we can't help our people do that, then like we tie a national myth to the Christian faith and they don't inherently go together. So mm. that's what I mean when I'm talking about not asking. The pastor feels like I am being apolitical or ahistorical or whatever by just focusing on the scriptures. But like that just means you offload that kind of discipleship to the rest of the wider culture. There's a reason that the, that, that the Bible includes historical narratives because history is theology. Sorry, this is my last part. And I'll leave this alone because I want to talk about history and theology. We, we, he, let me give you an example. This is like a, a, a really important example. So we all agree that like Israel went into exile. This is a historical fact inside and outside the Bible. But why did Israel go into exile? Well, in the Bible, it says Israel went into exile because they broke the covenant. But like the Babylonians who came in didn't announce because you broke, you, you know, if you were sitting on the ground, what you saw was a much more powerful army come smack Israel around and carry them into exile. So there's no historical evidence that what the Bible says caused the exile actually caused it. It's a theological claim. It's a theological interpretation of history. The Babylonians say we won because we had a bigger army. The, the Jews say we won because we sinned. And so part of being a Jewish historical, historical theologian is to make sense of what is happening in light of what we know about who God is. Hmm. So as we look at what's going on in history, we can't simply say it is the job of the pastor to completely be disconnected from it is the job of the pastor to help people to think theologically through the things that are going on in the world, not by turning America into Israel or any of that other stuff, but it's, it's helping people think, as a Christian, how do I understand the world in which I live in light of God's word? If the mm. only reason you can conclude that Babylonians won, because like Babylonians would have won anyway, right? You, you, you take God away, Israel versus Babylon, Babylon wins, period. But the theologian said, I know why Babylon won. Because there was a covenant. And so we have to be able to, we can't speak with that kind of clarity because we're not like, you know, writing scripture, but we can help our people think theologically through the moment. And these are the hard questions that we have to answer. And if we don't do that, if we check out of that work, then there's someone else who is giving a theological interpretation of history. Moment by moment, week by week, day by day. And our congregations are being trained and discipled by non-theologians to help us help to make sense of the world. Sorry, I know mm. that wasn't part of my book. I'm bad. No, 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 no. This is this is great. But uh, so I, I think what I appreciate about what you're saying is that's a lot of what we see in Paul's writings, correct? Yes. And so if you could ask Paul two or three questions, um, and, and some of this is almost like kind of helping us train in this way, what would those questions that you would want, what would those questions be that you'd want to ask? I would, I mean, I would ask Paul, explain to me how I reconstruct your theology from a position of power when you live mm. in a position of weakness. Mm. Um, because most of what Paul did, he did in a regime. Um, so you, like, if you didn't like something that was going on in Rome, he couldn't go to Caesar and go, Caesar, could you adjust your laws? It was just a given that this is the world in which they live. And he was helping a group of people who had no power to make sense of what it looks like to be like a minority in this, in this Roman empire. And so the Christian who's an ethnic minority or a Christian who lacks power easily reads Paul very well, because we understand we're trying to live in a society as Christians without a lot of political power. The dangerous part comes when you have political power and you read Paul and you pretend as if you don't. You read mm. Paul is speaking to you, the powerful person, even though like Paul speaks, like, for example, First Corinthians. Paul says. God chose the weak. God, basically, he says in Corinthians, God chose the scrubs, right? Not many were rich, not many were powerful. But that here's the here's the fact of the matter. That doesn't describe many American churches. Hmm. We do have money. We do have power. We are wise. We elect presidents. So how do we then make sense of how Paul speaks to his congregation and talks about the importance of a cruciform approach to the world? We're not just making sense of being Christians without power. This is what Paul's trying to do in Corinth. How do I make sense of being a Christian without political power? 
or a social power. But now we have it. How does how would Paul tell us to wield it? Now there's hints at this, right? We talked about the weak and the strong within the body of Christ. But what does it mean now to be a church? Um, so for one simple example. Romans 13 says, submit to the state, but we are the state in a democratic republic. Mm. We're two years, we're like at any point, at as farthest point, we're two years out from reelecting our House of Representatives. So if we don't like the government, we can literally vote it out at any point. So what does submission look like in that context? And this requires mm. theological imagination. Um, and so though, like I would ask Paul to say, give us some principles for doing that. Um, I would also ask Paul to like actually give a couple of sermons because <laughs> I think there's some things that Paul says that we don't take seriously that aren't a result of like fancy exegesis, but like just laying there that we have become accustomed to misreading. So it's like, Paul, give me like, give me like five, five, give me five sermons on things that you, we said that you said that we need to stop saying. <laughs> mm, that's, good. that's good. That's good. That's meta, but that's good. <laughs> so let me, I'm sorry. I think about this is because like one of the, one of the things that I talk, one a good example, forgive me talking about so much about power, but I think this is an important question. Mm-hmm. We all talk about spiritual warfare. I just like a given, but <laughs> strangely enough, we spiritualize spiritual warfare. And what I mean is Paul says that there's like this thing called the present evil age. And he says the world is under the power of like evil forces. He says it in, in Galatians and in Ephesians. That is not simply a claim about like individual sin. It's a claim ab- about a broken world. Well, a broken world that is under the, <laughs> the power of demonic forces that he calls the kingdom of darkness are going to do things that are antithetical to God. So in other words, Paul posits not just individuals, but corrupt societies under the influence of spiritual forces who are who are causing strife. So that means we should expect to see that should like that should inform our political theology and mm. the church's public witness. So when you're talking about pushing back against like manifestation of evil in the public square, we should expect that. So we can't so so we 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 have to learn how to just read what Paul says and actually assume that it speaks to the reality in which we experience it. And we sometimes like um, only think about Paul and his letters as affecting my personal piety instead of him actually describing the world in which we live. Mm-hmm. And, and so I would like, I would hopefully get Paul to say that I'm right about that analysis of him. He might say, Esau, I'm wrong. I'm wrong about that. He might point me in a bunch of different other directions. So and I would ask him like a bunch of other details. Like, what were you, what did you mean when you talk about the curse of the law in Galatians 3.30? I, I got some questions for Paul, but that's a different conversation for a different day. <laughs> we hope you're enjoying this conversation. We want to take a quick break to let you hear something that we think you'll find of value. So, I mean, your book, Hermeneutics, right? Understanding how we read scripture and how it impacts how we live today. You explore the idea of black biblical interpretation. So for those who would be unfamiliar with that, what is sort of the, you know, what is it? What makes it distinct from other biblical interpretation? Yeah, so I think this is probably for some, for some sections of, the, of, of readers, the very, the very word upsets them, black biblical interpretation, interpretation. They get all in their feelings. It feels like I'm saying that like my black skin gives me magical interpretive powers. And I always like it's always easier to begin by analogy. Okay. And then like the analogy shows like what I mean. First thing is like we talk about socially located theology all of the time. Have anyone ever heard of British evangelicalism? Right? The idea that British evangelicalism is different than American evangelicalism. Well, remember that book, how the like the Celtic form of evangelism, remember that book? And like mm-hmm. nobody freaked out and said, you know, that's racist. <laughs> they tell them a special way of evangelizing. Like, no, it's kind of great. So it's actually like, and this is like American needs to deal with their own trauma. It's the fact when black people say it, the people get upset. Let me give mm. you some like further examples. If you've ever been a pastor in two places, like let's say you were a pastor in a rural area and then you moved to a city. 
the moment that you begin to imagine the congregation, right? When you say like, I used to preach it in this congregation, I preach it there. When you begin to imagine the congregation that you're going to preach to, you can look at the same text and come up with like a different understanding. It doesn't mean the text changes. It's that literally putting different people in your brain to populate your brain with these people and thinking, how does this text minister to them? Helps you see things that are in the text themselves that you previously didn't see. And were you not ministering to that particular congregation, you never would have had that. And if you don't believe that's true, think about like you're preaching to a youth group, but then you're preaching to singles, and then you're preaching to people. And so like once you begin to say, who functions as the part of my mental architecture? Mm-hmm. Now, so, so the first part is when the target changes, sometimes your understanding of the text changes, or even the nuances in the text that come out. The second thing is, it's also your experiences. When you bring certain things to the text, right? And you're saying, okay, I grew up as a, in, in this kind of context, and these inform the kinds of questions that I bring to the biblical text. Let me give you one example. I teach it at, at, at Wheaton College. And every year, they, students can choose any text that they want to for their semester project. And like 85 to 90% of the females choose a, a passage on women in ministry or gender roles. Always. Fellas never do it because they, they think they know. <laughs> they think they got it. But So why are the women coming to ask that question when they can choose any question in the world? Mm. Because they know how this is impinged upon their lives. It doesn't mean they're going to interpret it better, but they're going to be motivated to look at this text closely, much more than someone who might not consider the thing of, of importance. And so I want to talk about African-American biblical interpretation then. I'm talking about two things. I'm talking about how the collective experiences of African-Americans in the United States causes us to bring certain questions to the biblical text. Mm, mm. And I'm talking about how the idea of ministering to a community influences the way that we talk about a text. Let's think of once, one more, one more, sorry to give an analogy on analogy. It's 1955, and they just passed Brown versus Board of Education, integrating this Christian school. And you pastor an all-white church in Montgomery and an all-white, all-black church in Montgomery, and both of you have the same text. Is that sermon going to sound different? <laughs> so to pretend, pretend that there isn't a particular ethos of black preaching and black biblical interpretation that's developed over years of having to wrestle with the same questions, um, it's just simply dishonest. Mm. And we understand this in other traditions. We, we know, for example, about like the, 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 the Chinese house church movement and their commitment to prayer and the unique spirituality that comes out of China. We know it. The question is, why aren't African-Americans allowed to have that same kind of unique insights? And it's the other thing. It's the other thing. We also know that sometimes having someone from a different culture come into America can speak a truth to us that we don't see. Like, we don't recognize that it's ridiculous to have 15 different kinds of apples and that that's a manifestation of American materialism until someone comes and tells us these things. And we have the missionaries come in all of the time and talk to us about what it's like to be a Christian in the, the majority world. Now, the, the thing that I think is so challenging to people is they don't understand this different America that is experienced by Black people. Mm-hmm. And the inability to deal with that reality doesn't allow us to kind of come to grips with unique ways the African-Americans were interpreted. And there's one more, and I know this is a long, a long answer, but this, the other part is historical. And this is like, once again, these are just facts. People like, you can get mad at it. The African-American church had to develop unique ways of interpreting the Bible over against the slave master exegesis coming out of the Great Awakening and um, the, the up, up, leading up until the Civil War and the aftermath. And it is quite simply the case that, for example, when the slave master was saying, here are these two passages, you know, Timothy and this other passage, and this is, therefore the conversation is over. And the African-American preaching tradition developed a particularly canonical instinct of saying, I see your two passages, but let's look at the Bible as a whole. So here's a perfect example. They would, they would, they would say stuff like, hey, I understand what you said about this, but Paul also says that um, husbands, why should submit to their husbands, children should submit to their parents. It's just you can't have that, um, that reality if you're going to sell people and break them up. So that was a way of saying, let's not just look at this individual verse. Let's look at all the ways which the Christian faith more broadly speaks to this issue. And when they started reading the Bible that way, that we all now do, 
at the time they were called heretic. Mm. At the time they were saying that method of asking that question. Hey, Paul says that, you know, the husband and the wife have this insoluble bond. Therefore, you can't do this. They're saying, well, you can't apply that text in this way. No, they say, yes, we can. Mm. And so to say that there aren't literally distinctive ways, the Bible reading that were passed down in black churches is simply to kind of step on history. So when I talk about African-American interpretation, I talk about, first of all, that historical way of reading the Bible that was passed down through generations and the ways in which our experiences shape the questions that we ask and the ways in which by looking at a certain community, it helps us to see things that are in the text itself that we otherwise might not have noted. Yeah, in fact, let's go with that, because I found it fascinating when you talked about Simon of Cyrene, now he's the father of Rufus and Alexander, and you talk about that in the book. Help us see that with a new and significant layer to the story, uh, because I think that reinforces what you're saying, but giving people an example. So Cyrene of Cyrene um, was an African, and he was, um, he's the one who's forced to carry the cross of Jesus. But in, in, I think it's one of the gospels, they say, this is Simon, whose sons, Alexander and Rufus, who you know. And you begin to ask, well, how do you, how do you know who his kids are? Well, you know who his kids are because most likely Simon became a Christian and then he went and evangelized his children. And there's also someone who is described as Cyrene's, Simon's, a wife of Simon. There's, I mean, the, the mother of Rufus and Alexander in another part of the Bible. So it's possible this African-American, well, it's African man, African-American, African man evangelized his children and his wife. And that put in, in like the and he did it by having an encounter with Jesus at the cross. Mm-hmm. And I use that as an opportunity in the book to talk about like what was what is it that draws black people to Jesus or African people? It's the same thing that draws everybody else, the cross. And then you go back to the Ethiopian eunuch. And this is the important part of the Ethiopian eunuch. Why did why tell the story of the Ethiopian eunuch when it is told in the book of Acts? Of all the stories that Luke could have told. He told that story at that point, at the beginning of this church leaving Jerusalem, to make the point, to make the point, exegetically, that the gospel is for everybody. And he says to the gospel, is it for everybody by converting an Ethiopian? And when he converts to Ethiopian, what is the text that he's reading? He's reading the story of the suffering servant. He said, and, and the Ethiopian eunuch asked him, well, who is this talking? Man, I tell people, like, I wish that like this would be like my evangelization. I'm at the coffee shop. And someone says, I'm reading Isaiah 53. Who is this about? Talk about like a softball. You know what he did. He came in and he preached the cross. Mm-hmm. So you then have at the beginning of Christianity, both literally on the cross, at the cross, Simon, and at the beginning of the church in Acts, you have two Africans converted by means of the cross. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the implications of that for African-Americans who have been told historically. The Christianity is a white man's religion and that we only became Christians because of slavery. It proves that story false. Mm-hmm. That just like everybody else, we were drawn to Jesus by the proclamation of the cross. And that has direct relevance to a people, to a people who have been historically told that we are latecomers to the Christian story. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating. That's Acts 8 with the Ethiopian yes. eunuch. And then it isn't yes. really until Acts 10 and 11 where Peter actually quote unquote, converts by realizing the gospels for everyone. I just find that the order of that story to be so fascinating. And, 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 this, and this is what I want people to understand when I talk about this. That is true. So like you cannot be African-American and come to that same point that the Ethiopian unity teaches the gospel is for everyone. That's not, that's not something that I constructed in the text. What I'm saying, though, is that in my context, I derive a particular meaning that I can apply in a particular way. Mm. And then because of the questions that I brought to the text, and I'm asking, I'm asking, in this text, is there any place for me? This is what I mean. We bring out, we, and, and to, to pretend, to pretend that Christians everywhere don't do this, right? Someone who has, who has suffered trauma, and they open the Bible. They're not just opening the Bible just to say, I wonder what God has to say. They're saying, what does God have to say about the things that I experienced? And they find in this text a God who's a friend, not an enemy. Mm. And to pretend that we can completely separate our lived experiences from the process of reading scripture is to pretend like we're robots. Now, what makes what what what, what prevents that from being completely subjective is that we 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 ultimately understand that though that the, 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 we can bring whatever questions that we want to the text, but the text gives us the answer. 
right? The text is the one that speaks God's word to us when we question it. And I feel like there's no experience out into which God can't speak to us. And so people think they're like to affirm the reality that cultures bring certain questions to the text, decenters it. I think what it does is it makes it plain that it's a human reading these texts. So I really appreciate uh, just the way that you're talking about our experiences have such a deep, integral part of how we're reading this and how we come to the scriptures. And so you had an interesting, very intriguing section in your book, um, Luke, a gospel writer for black Christians. What did you mean by this? <laughs> oh, you got to get me into So what I was trying to say. <laughs> hey, we didn't write it. You wrote it. This is what I was trying to say. Um, actually, this, I mean, there's so much I can say about Luke. But the first thing is that there can be, Luke says at the beginning of his gospel, many of you heard about these other accounts of Jesus. I want you to make sure that you get the correct account. Of so in other words, Luke begins his gospel by saying, I'm countering potentially misleading portrayals of Jesus. We know that those potentially mis, mis, misreadings aren't the synoptic gospels because he quotes them all of the time. So like Luke shows that he's in basic agreement with Matthew and Mark, John isn't written yet. So what else is it? I mean, there's another Jesus outside of the synoptic tradition. And he said, I want to make sure that we get right. And African-Americans who come to the Bible first hear about like the God of the slave master who only says you're inferior and you should accept your place in society. And so in so much as Luke is presenting a, 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 a true portrayal over against the false portrayals, the African-American can have some affinity. But the other thing, affinity with him, the other thing that I was trying to say is that Luke is a Gentile, most likely, and he's articulating the place of the Gentiles in God's wider purpose. Mm. And it's really, we don't really think about this a lot, but like Luke, like the idea, like that the, the gospel is for everyone that makes itself known throughout math, throughout Mark, sorry, Luke and Acts, is being told by someone who's a beneficiary of that story. Mm. Mm. And he's saying in his gospel, hey, this is God always planned to do this. This isn't like the Israel didn't work out, so he has a plan B. It was always God's purpose to create a, a people. Mm. And so when the early African-American pastors became Christians and they began to preach the gospel, they were saying over and over again, African peoples, you're not like a plan B. You're part of God's own plan from the beginning. So this is another example of the ways in which, um, by analogy, we can begin to see, I call it the painter saying of African-American building interpretation because Luke articulates the place of a people who might want, who might feel marginalized. Mm -hmm. And the African-American Christian in America has been told. And, and I don't think that people, this is what I mean when I say like, you don't understand this stuff unless you drink deeply from history. You can go back to 17, the 1700s. And right after the Revolutionary War, leading up to the Declaration of Independence, you had African-Americans, like the one who writes to the, to the legislature in Massachusetts, one group of African, African slaves writes to the legislature in, in Connecticut saying, hey, you just fought a battle for liberation. Maybe you should like free us. It wasn't like nobody knew. The black, the enslaved people say, hey, can we be free too? And it's like, no, like God made you to be a slave. And so like this idea was like the, the, the equality of black people and our place within God's kingdom was stated unequivocally up through 1776, all the way through the Civil War. And during this entire time, we were called heretics. Mm. Mm. And the thing that kept us like from going crazy is that when we looked in the Bible, we saw a God who articulated his concern for people like us. Mm. Mm. And so... The idea that in this text we encounter a, the real God over against this distortion is similar to what Luke is doing when he's composing his narrative. Mm, mm. And I love in the book how you connected that to the early black preachers in um, the U.S. You talk about the African American African Methodist Episcopal uh, yeah. congregation and and Richard Allen. Yeah. You know, I'm here in the Philadelphia area. I teach at a seminary in the many of my students are AME. Yeah. And it's fascinating to hear them talk about the passages exactly how, you know, the outsider that understands the good news is available to everyone. This is the context of my classroom. So 
I'm so glad you're touching on this and that you connected that back specifically to the AME, which started here in Philadelphia. One of the, let me, let me give you like one more example. This will leave Luke for a second. Justification. What I want people to like go back and reread math, reread um, Romans, reread Galatians. And don't, and, and this is the, this is what we do. And I get it. We're Protestants. We're, we argue about like whether or not you have to like the works of the law and what this means. That's fine. We need to have that argument. But here's the question. What is the doctrine justification doing in Paul's argument? What is it actually doing? How is it functioning? It's functioning to create one church across different. Oh. Or is God the God of the Jews only, right? You see what I mean? So like the point is, because we're justified by faith, Jews and Gentiles can be together. Oh. So justification by faith serves the function of uniting the church across difference under the lordship of Jesus. And we have separated the function of, of justification and it's argued about the doctrine. So if we preach justification right, it's not just that we say that all men are sinners. Yes, fine. We're saying that like, because all men are sinners and all are saved by Jesus, we can be together in one community. Mm, mm. So justification has as its telos the creation of a community across difference. So if your church can't actually function together across difference, then do we understand the real heart of justification? Mm-hmm. Which is which is like the graciousness of God should allow us to be gracious towards one another, even when it's hard for us to be in community together. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm saying is like justification has its 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 telos in a certain place, and so we can't keep separating these doctrines out as if Paul was teaching like a systematic theology class instead of to lead a natural congregation. So these ideas like hit the ground. And this is what I'm mean, talking about the AME. That's where the AME begins to say, like Christ our brother, God our father, mankind our family. Because they understood it. Coming out of slavery. Man, if this Christian gospel is true, then even our former enslavers are a part of our family. So this Christian doctrine That's some heavy stuff. It hits it hits the ground in a certain place. <laughs> I know. So, and, mm-hmm. and and I and I and I will say this and this this is how you get there in case in case they want to know. If you say those things, and this and people need to hear the entire series of ideas, I, they can tell me where they check out. If the if Christian if Christian doctrine means we must be together, that means we must love one another. If we love one another, that means we're concerned with what happens to each other. If mm-hmm. you concern what happens happening to your brothers and sisters, then that leads to the issue of justice. Mm-hmm. Unity arises out of love. Love arises out of mutual concern. Mutual concern for your brothers and sisters in Christ means that when they're experiencing injustice, then you have to be on their side. Mm. This is Mm. not about politics. It's about Christian theology. Mm. And if Mm. you don't even believe me when I say, these are the things that I am experiencing, uniformly, then like we, our community, our community is going to be limited. The goal mm, of mm. the Christian pastor isn't some kind of like political stance in the world. It is it is a public manifestation of love for neighbor. Mm, mm. Wow. wow. I really wish that we would have um gone below the this just the surface of issues <laughs> and gone to deep issues today on this episode. But uh Sorry. no. No, no, this is this is absolutely wonderful. And I'm so glad that uh we, we were able to just allow you to you didn't know which questions we were going to throw at you. And I'm so grateful for pushing us because I feel like in some sense, we got an appendix to the book <laughs> by being able to hear some of these additional thoughts. Yeah, so I mean, we're, yeah go ahead. No, th- thank you. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah. yeah well, it's been such a joy to, to hear uh, you and uh, yeah, may the Lord continue to bless you, especially as you are a functional single parent in this season. <laughs> thank you for, uh, we know it's not just your wife, but everybody uh, in a family uh, serves. And so thank you for your willingness to to serve our country in that way, even in the midst of the craziness that the country has been in over the last several months. Thank you. So thank you. Can I say something to the pastors? Yes, mm, please. I, End us with listen, that. I know that your job is hard. I I was a pastor for a long time, but I was never a pastor during a pandemic, during such a politically trying season. I know that you are tired. And I wish if I could give all of you a gift certificate or something, I could, but I cannot. I can say that God sees your labor and I pray that he gives you rest and refreshing in the, in the, in the, in the, in, in the corners and the nooks and crannies 
the quietness that you're able to reside. And I would tell you this also, like your ministry matters. Nobody knew about my church, Union Hill Primitive Baptist Church, until it appeared outside of my like little town, until it appeared in the book. And I am a Christian today, not because of the the genius of like Gordon Conwell that taught me my, my MDiv or because of the religion courses I took in undergrad, because of the faithful preaching of a pastor week in and week out over 18 years, preached the gospel to me every Sunday. Uh, uh, uh. So like, I, I think that the pastor's job is literally the most important job. Like, I think I have the least important job between like me and y'all, y'all are doing the important work. And I'm really, really serious when I say like this stuff matters. The reason, sorry, I know you got to cut me off from the podcast. The reason is like, the reason there's like hope for the church is because Satan can't, he can't keep all of us down. And wherever he's thinking like, here's this big platform thing that I'm going to go step on and corrupt this person. There's some pastor over there who's preaching the gospel to some knuckleheaded 15 year old who might go and be in some service of the kingdom of God. So I just want to say your labor is not unnoticed and it is not in vain. God bless the local church. It is the hope of the world. Mm -hmm. Amen. Mic drop. We're going to end there. That's beautiful. Well, thank you again, Esau. Blessings to you. (laughs) Doug, we, we went all over the place. Uh, they were it was good, but it went all over the place with Esau Macaulay here. Lots of topics uh, yeah. that he explored in our in our conversation. <laughs> yes, yes, we did. Boy, what like I I mean, coming out of that interview, I I just I felt hyped up, ready to go, man. I mean, just he brings so much energy and life with him. Uh, yeah, there's just so many so many things are rattling around in my head. I feel like it was definitely a deep dive. It was yeah. Deep, I mean, deep, when, when you have a conversation with an Anglican, an Anglican priest who's written a book on hermeneutics and is a New Testament professor. You, you got to know a little bit that it's going to be a deep dive. But he also was quite funny. I mean, you and I had a chance to connect with him before we pressed record. <laughs> and oh my gosh, we have not laughed that hard with a guest, maybe ever. I've, ever. And, yeah. uh, so it was really great to have a deep dive as well as uh, some, some good laughter. But but of all the things that he covered, including jazz hands, we talked a lot about jazz hands <laughs> in addition to a deep dive. But what are some things that stuck out to you that are swirling around in your head and your heart? I mean, and you know me, man, like the the practical soul care nature of, of my life. I just, I love that he has an icon of John the Baptist in his house to remind him that, that he's not the Messiah. Um, and for me, that was just so freeing. And I think too, um, my, my theology, all my theology buttons were being pushed. And especially as we just dove deeply into hermeneutics, but I think it might be important, JR, just to like touch on like, why is hermeneutics so important? Yeah, great. Cause I mean, you know, as pastors, primary, our, our primary audience would say, yeah, hermeneutics, I had hermeneutics courses in seminary, or that's really important how I interpret the Bible so that I can preach. But for those of us who, who may not, you know, it may not be an exciting term. Hermeneutics is so important because, you know, I, I like to to tell this story. Uh, if if I say I'm mad about my flat, in America it means I'm angry that I got a flat tire, and I'm going to be late. But if I say I'm mad about my flat and I'm in England, it means I'm really happy about my apartment. <laughs> and so, what's really important is it's the same words, but how we interpret it, hermeneutics, matters tremendously. So we've got to understand the culture. We've got to understand the language. We've got to understand the people. We've got to understand the times in which it was written. And I think that's what what Esau talked about was if we say, uh, you know, I'm mad about my flat. Uh, some of us are, you know, angry about a flat tire, and other of us are excited about an apartment. And so hermeneutics is so important to understand: is it about an apartment or is it about a tire? Are we happy or are we angry? And so just being able to understand the difference of those is really important. So hermeneutics is wildly important. Uh, and I think so much so in the year that we've had that it, it now is the Christianity Today book of the year for a reason, um, because hermeneutics and how people read our Bibles and people say, just preach the Bible. <laughs> and I know pastors who are tuned into this. We hear this all the time, right? Like I, I go to that church, you know, I'm going to go to that church over there because they really preach the Bible and, and they say, wait, wait a second, how we interpret the Bible first 
is going to have a massive impact on how we preach the Bible. And so we can't just say, well, you know, that bumper sticker, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Um, boy, I wish it were that easy. And we do believe God's word, but we have to do the hard work of making sure hermeneutics is accurate, important, and right-centered and understands God and his mission for the world. So, uh, Doug, I also think it's important for you and I, as two white males, to uh, and, and other listeners, uh, regardless of their color, but I think for us hosting this as two white males, that we have Esau on, mm-hmm. because this is really important. Um, to, to, to dive deep into this is essential for us to realize. And as you know, I have an African-American son, and so this is important for me of uh, uh, just in my own household you know, every day. But this is so important that we grasp this. And um, one of the things that I loved in my doctoral work is, as a student, was that I was one of either two or the only white male in all of my classes. And what I didn't anticipate is how much that would shape me and my understanding of the scriptures and go, whoa, I've never thought about that. I've never seen scripture through that lens. And so that's, that's really important. Uh, Doug, I'm curious, why is that important for you as a white male that we hear or listen to someone like Esau and how uh, he interprets the Bible? Yeah, because my my and, and I love the way that Esau talks about the importance of the experience that you bring to Scripture. Um, my experience is one of suburban middle class America, and I need to be listening and hearing and sit under the the teaching and the stories of people who are reading it differently. I. Um, in the last three years, the most impactful sermon I heard, I was at Missio Alliance, and I cannot remember the preacher's name, but he talked about the the first miracle of Jesus and John, and he talked about it from the perspective of his grandmother, who was a servant in a home. And, and it just, it opened up the way that I saw that story unfold like never before. Listening to mm. Esau talk about Acts and the significance of an Ethiopian eunuch and and even in the storyline of, of just if we look at the nuts and bolts of Acts, there's significance to that and how that brings hope to people. Um, you know, for, I mean, I think if I'm reading it from a white perspective, like, oh, God loves eunuchs too, and even Ethiopians. But if I read that from a perspective where, where, where I see slavery in my past, my, in my life, I see my Africanness in my life, it changes things. It opens mm. up a deep well of hope. So, for me, I just was so grateful to sit and to listen, to wildly take notes, to follow, to laugh, uh, and to feel moved by, and and even to notice gut checks in me, like, oh, why does that sting a little bit? Or, oh, how come mm. that felt that way? Um, mm. But just so grateful for Esau's mind, his humor, and just the way he's able to, to help us to think through scripture again. Yeah, it reminded me of the Wesleyan quadru- quadrilateral, which yeah, I know Wesley. some of us, uh, you know, some of us went to... Uh, when we were in seminary, we learned about this. If you're not familiar with the Wesleyan quadrilateral, uh, John Wesley um, used this as a way of how we interpret Scripture. And he said, you know, in terms of making decisions in ministry and as a pastor, the quadrilateral, so just think of like a, you know, a four boxes or a two-by-two two kind of metric there. And, and the four were Scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. And all four of those help us interpret Scripture uh, very well. So scripture, obviously, what does scripture have to say? And how do other scripture passages interpret that? What does my tradition say for the last several hundred years or a couple millennia? What is my own experience? And then how about reason? God has given us a mind. He wants us to love the Lord our God with all our mind. So what, what does it just mean to just exert my cognitive ability to translate or to understand uh, or to study this passage? But he talked on experience. And we have to be careful we don't elevate you know, and make all, one more important than disregard all the, the the three others that all are important. And I think he would, he didn't talk about the Wesleyan quadrilateral specifically, yeah. but that idea of experience, we've often highlighted the other three and experiences there. And I think in our culture, sometimes it goes the other way where maybe we make experience the only box and we disregard the other three. And so I think he was really helpful in helping us see all four of those boxes yeah. in here. Absolutely. And it reminded me, Doug, of a... Um, a couple of years ago, I went to the Museum of the Bible, and I was um, kind of filling, filling in kind of a little bit of a temporary interim for a pastor friend of mine who was in Washington, D.C. And on my day off, I went to the Museum of the Bible right off the mall there near Capitol Hill. And uh, in one of the exhibits, they have a slave Bible. 
And it's what slave owners would do is they would take a Bible and they would take out the passages that had to do with freedom. Mm. And they would highlight the passages that had to do with, you know, uh, slaves be submissive to your masters. So you talk about twisting the hermeneutics. They would literally take passages out and they would make sure they preach regularly on being submissive to your slave owner Mm. so that slaves wouldn't read the Bible fully and think about their own freedom. So they took out Galatians. And and I just thought, man, this is why hermeneutics, as nerdy as that might sound, why it's so important, because if you get it wrong, it causes incredible damage of trying to understand what is true. So... Um, anyway, yeah, that slave Bible. I mean, I just still get chills thinking about that behind glass, like seeing that book there and going, man, how we can twist scripture to our own liking if we're not careful. Yeah. yeah. And I think too, <clears throat> sorry, we could, we're, we're going to, we'll have to do like a whole episode just on this, like bringing out, coming down from Esau. But I think, um, even from that perspective of how, how grateful I am, um, to, for, for my African pastor brothers and sisters over the years who've almost laid the way for a biblical theological interpretation of scripture over a systematic approach and uh, and not throwing one we're out. really getting deep here but, we're really getting deep here now <laughs> again like i love how how what, what Esau was saying is that is that pastors interpreted the passages in not just in like the pick and stick or the pick and dip but in in the context of the story and so i feel like that is one of the things that um I mean, even as a seminary student was, was just so intriguing to me because I, I, that wasn't a lot of my experience growing up. It was like, Hey, here's a passage that we can kind of study and look at. And that's important and it's good for formation, but how do we continue to keep the whole arc of the narrative within, within our teaching, within our preaching, um, and within our formation as well. That's good. I, I love when, uh, we ask, what questions would you ask Paul? Say, um, <laughs> Can you give us a few sermons? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I've never thought about that. We have great letters, but give us some sermons that we can read where you're fleshing out this theology and ecclesiology in a sermon. Uh, it was fascinating. I, I love that. And then I love that at the end he said, I just wish we could give a gift certificate to all pastors. I thought he was going to say, wish he could give a copy of his book to all pastors, but yeah. he said gift certificate. But uh, nonetheless, I, I really appreciated that. So let's let's give let's give our listeners some resources. Obviously, we want to recommend his book, Reading While Black: African American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Now, if you are not a person of color, I want to challenge you because your first question was probably, "Why should I pick that up? I'm not black. Why should I pick that up? I'm not African American." You should pick it up because you're not African American. You should pick it up because it'll help you understand how that experience in the quadrilateral, the Wesleyan quadrilateral is so important and why we need to really be aware of the different perspectives that are out there. So that's number one. Number two, which ties in with Esau's book, is another book by InterVarsity Press, uh, Doug, which you mentioned, and you're exactly right, called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, Removing Cultural Blindness to Better Understand the Bible by Richards and O'Brien. Again, misreading scripture with Western eyes. And this goes into that, how do we, as a Westerner, misunderstand uh, and misread the idea of a, an Eastern book written two millennia ago? Um, and then it reminds me of one of my favorite uh, Bible hermeneutics uh, books that doesn't sound as nerdy uh, as I said it then, but Jesus <laughs> Through Middle Eastern Eyes, Cultural Studies in the Gospels by Kenneth Bailey. If you've ever read anything by Kenneth Bailey, uh, you know what I'm talking about. If you've never read Kenneth Bailey, uh, he's a master. He grew up in the Middle East and uh, then writes about the Bible from the perspective of the Middle East. So again, Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes, cultural studies in the Gospels by Kenneth Bailey. Uh, so Doug, what are some questions that we can leave our listeners with? Yeah. Uh, as as you heard Esau talk, what emotions did you feel? Were you defensive, welcoming, confused, frustrated? And or did you find yourself leaning in? So that's one question. Another couple other questions. If you were to take one step toward understanding the perspective of someone else, even in how they read their Bible, what step would that be? Um, what life experience has shaped your understanding of a particular biblical story for you? Mm. I think that's a really important question, just to understand how our experience shapes our understanding of, a, of, of the scripture. And then lastly, how does this interview help you think different about your Bible? Is it Luke? 
the story of Simon from Cyrene? Is it the Ethiopian eunuch? Are there other examples? But how is this interview helping you think different about your Bible? Mm, mm, mm. That's great. And as we go, pastors and listeners to the Monday Morning Pastor podcast, may you be committed to the scriptures, but also compassionate about the perspective of others. May we be committed to truth, but also open to seeing how context shapes our understanding of the gospel. And may you have patience in the process with yourself and with others.